Good to see you here this morning. We're continuing in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning, I think, I think we'll get through the entire chapter of chapter 15. And again, I say that not to put down any particular section of Scripture as unimportant to discuss. But remember, I just felt that the burden of the Holy Spirit in this particular teaching of this gospel is not to go into minute detail in every section of Scripture. There may be some that we want to stop and look at in a lot more detail, and there may be others just to pass over, you know, pretty quickly as a comment and move along to give us, hopefully, an overview of Matthew. And so when you go to read Matthew and study Matthew, you might want to take these notes and look at them and kind of peruse them, and this is what you're reading, and this is what the background is, whatever. But once again, Matthew's purpose, Matthew's purpose by the leading of the Spirit is to show that Jesus, this carpenter's son, is none other, than, none other than the promised, prophesied Messiah, which prophecy began in Genesis chapter 3 as the seed of the woman. And then the prophecies continue throughout the Old Testament, adding to and expounding upon and enlarging the understanding of this person and of his character and of his work. And so by the time we come to the birth of this one, the Holy Spirit has pretty well painted a pretty clear picture of who this Messiah will be, although that picture was misunderstood and very often misapplied during the Old Testament, and we understand that. We know how that is. And so when he is born and when he especially enters into the ministry in chapter 3, remember at his inauguration and baptism by the Holy Spirit, his announcement to the world, this is my son. This is he who has been prophesied and promised from the very beginning. He's here. That's what we see at the baptism of Jesus. And so Matthew shows through the teachings of Jesus, through the character of this man, and through the activities, miracles, power, this is the Messiah, the Christ. Remember, the word Christos is the Greek translation of the word Messiah, meaning anointed one. This is he whom we have been expecting from the beginning. And so as we go through these episodes, if you would, what Matthew was doing episode upon episode, historical event upon historical event, is building the scriptural proof that Jesus is the Messiah, all of which points to and is culm- If I keep going like this, we're not even get to the first verse, will we? All of which is culminating in and clearly fulfilled as demonstrated to be the truth in the death and the resurrection, not just the death, because without the resurrection, there is no proof, and there is no Messiah. And so in the death and resurrection, and as a result of that, Jesus ascends into the heavens, is exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords, 
so as to have the authority as a man, as a man, to send the Holy Spirit to gather a people whom God has predestined and called before the foundation of the world, remember Ephesians 1-4, to be the people for whom the Messiah has come to bring into his kingdom. That's what we're seeing here. Let's keep always that in our minds. So in this chapter, we're gonna, there are three sections, and I hope again to get through them. Number one, the Pharisees, once again, their misapplication, but this time their misuse of the law, and this time in relation to the laws of clean and unclean, verses 1 to 20. And then the second episode is Jesus' encounter with a Canaanite woman, verses 21 to 28. And then three, the feeding of the 4,000, verses 29 to 39. <clears throat> so let's go ahead with verses 1 to 2. The first section, Jesus is being confronted by the Pharisees concerning why aren't you doing what we have been doing for years and what the elders' tradition says we should do? And so we see in this Jesus' clarity on what has been misappropriated and misunderstood and misused of the law. Verses 1 to 2, Then Pharisees, then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why don't your disciples break? Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, man? Why aren't they obeying what we've told them to do? We have our regulations, you see. For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, parents don't get excited. <laughs> Jesus is not saying that your little boy can come in and just eat the food without washing the hands. That's not what's going on here. Okay. The Pharisees had come from Jerusalem. And remember, when it says they came from Jerusalem, what they're saying here is that there is this group of Pharisees, and most of whom other Pharisees are involved in this, and perhaps all of them at this point to some extent. They're coming from Jerusalem, and they're following Jesus. They're sending delegations. He's going to be over there in Caesarea Philippi. He's going over there to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He's going up there, there to the land of wherever. And so they're sending these men, go catch him, go talk to him, confront him. Let's see what he's doing. All with this thought in mind. Let's entrap him. Let's do something to show that he, in fact, is not obedient to the law, but that he is breaking the law, because if we can prove that he's breaking the law, we can prove that he is not the Messiah. He was a charlatan, and we can deal with that according to the law and get rid of him. You see their motive here. Now, the Pharisees have come to confront and entrap Jesus by asking the disciples why they were breaking the tradition of the elders, of the elders, by not washing their hands when eating. Now, what's the background of this? <clears throat> We've been through this before, so I'll go through it pretty quickly. If you don't remember, you can go back several chapters and lessons ago when we talked about, remember, the leper and the cleaning of the cleansing of the leper and so on. What was under the Mosaic Covenant? Now, remember Exodus. Exodus gives you the Mosaic Covenant, the law. Leviticus is an extension of that or an elaboration upon how that law is to be fulfilled through the sacrificial system and the rites of cleansing and all of those kinds of things. Under the Mosaic law, a person had to be ritually made clean or declared to be clean by the priest in order to be made fit to come into the presence of God. A person in those days, just as today, just couldn't come before God, hey, I'm here to worship. I'm here to worship. 
in order to come before a clean and holy and pure God, the worshiper had to be made clean and pure and holy. Otherwise, they weren't anymore. Because God's presence cannot tolerate sin and pollution and defilement. And so you had to be cleansed. And this required the washing, all kinds of washings of clothes, of animals, of utensils, of parts of the body, such as the hands. And so in this way, this cleansing, this washing, the worshiper would be declared ritually clean, being made fit to enter the presence of the Lord. You remember in Psalm 24, 3, who shall ascend into the hill or the mountain of the Lord? And I want you to keep that word mountain in mind, especially when we get to Matthew 17, the mountain of God. The word mountain or hill, same thing, synonymous. Remember in Israel, they didn't have mountains like the Alps. They have mountains more like Monkey Hill. You know, 2,000 feet is the elevation of Jerusalem, and it's Mount Zion. 2,000 feet, that's a mountain. Well, for us it is. For those who live in the Alps, that's just a bump in the road. So we have to understand the relationship. But keep in mind the idea on the use of the word mountain or hill because it is a major significant symbol from the very beginning in Genesis all the way through of the Old Testament, where it is, has to do with the presence and the rule and the location, etc., of God. It has to do with the presence of God. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Remember Psalm 24, verse 3? What is the answer? He who has clean hands. That's just part of it. I just want to stop there. Who's coming into the presence of the Lord? He who has clean hands. Now, do you think that the intention of the Almighty God, Yahweh Himself, was that your physical hands had to be clean in order to, and so if you wash your hands, now I'm ready for God. Do you think that's the ultimate significance of the cleansing? As long as my hands are clean, I'm okay. I'm filthy everywhere else, but I got clean hands, Diana, so I can come in. Why? Because it says clean hands. And so you see what happens is the Pharisees, in a zeal, in a zeal to obey, not in a zeal to break the law, not in a zeal to do anything in their minds wrong and unproductive, but in a zeal to obey and in a zeal to help us understand what to do and to enumerate and elaborate upon what God really meant. Hear that. To take the Word of God and elaborate upon it and explain what God really meant. And the way to do this is to do these things also. So in doing these other things, we are fulfilling what God gave in the commandment. That became the tradition of the elders. After the Babylon, during the Babylonian captivity, you remember the temple had been destroyed. You remember that. I was there, I remember. Sure, all of you are thinking, how do you know that? Well, okay, I was there. And the temple's destroyed. So where, where is the location? Where's God? He dwelt in the temple, Clara. The temple ain't there no more. Where's God? How can we perform the rites of sacrifice? How can we come into the presence of God? The temple's gone. The temple's gone. Does that mean God has gone? Now, we know better, but Todd, they didn't. 
many of them thought God was gone. And so in Babylonian captivity, the realization hit them by the Spirit. You were here because of idolatry. Read 2 Kings 17, verses 7 to the end. It is one of the most instructive things that you will ever read, even as a believer. Read 2 Kings 17, 7 to the end. Not today, but just read it. Read it carefully. Read it carefully because it will sober you. And they realize one thing. We are here because of idolatry. And here's what the decision was. We ain't never committing idolatry ever again. And these people became zealous for protecting themselves from idolatry. I won't go into the idolatry because I think you've read the Old Testament enough to know what is happening here. And so in their zeal, they created what is called the Mishnah, adding over 600 regulations to the law of Moses for the purpose of, quote, helping and enabling his people to stay away from and be protected from any issue whatsoever of idolatry, to make sure that we are carrying out every dot and tittle of every aspect of every law all the time, every day. And they were doing that for the purpose of protecting you see, sometimes we think these Pharisees were ill-motivated. Well, in some areas they weren't, and in some areas they were. But it wasn't 100%. These were all gangsters. These were men who, in their own understanding, thought they were serving God. Remember the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee, thought he was serving God by attacking Christians. But you see, what they had done by additions, if you don't wash a hand this way, and if you don't wash a hand that way, and if you don't do it that way, and if you don't walk this way, and on the Sabbath, don't do any work. Well, what does work mean? Well, we don't know what. So if you take so many steps, it's not work. But when you take one more step, it's work. You see what they're doing. But the problem is this, and this is a massive issue which we won't take time to do today. This is an issue that could take weeks to talk about. They added their own thoughts and ideas and regulations to God's Word to add to or to detract from the Word of God pollutes and defiles the Word of God. Amen? And let's be careful about this, and let's be honest. I have never added anything whatsoever to the Word of God in all my life and would never do so. Amen? How many of would say amen to that? By, and then how many of us have done it? You see, all of us are in this same arena. We wind up in our desire to pray, uh, uh, please God. We wind up for ourselves and for our families and others, beginning to adjust God's Word and adjust how each one of us are living in order to be conformed to God's Word. And by doing so, we begin to preempt the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, does that mean we're not supposed to be involved and helping and instructing? Well, of course not. But we have to be very clear. And it's a lifelong battle. It's a battle that I face and have to fight. And I'm sure each of the elders have to face and fight it. And I'm sure each of us have to face and fight it. It's a lifelong battle to get the clarity of the Holy Spirit on any particular issue and to discern where my preference is overcoming or even competing with the Holy Spirit's will. Do you understand this? And then when we see this clearly by revelation of the Holy Spirit, even as he reveals it to us through the word, then we must, we must move away from our own preference, my own ways, my own whatevers. Otherwise, I'm in danger of polluting the very word of God. So Jesus answers them, verses 3 to 9, and why do you break the commandment of God? You know, they're trying to uphold the commandment of God. Your men are breaking the word, they're breaking the commandment by not washing. Jesus said, why do you break the word of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, remember this in the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. For those of you who are not from your own, honor your mom and them. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, but you say you add to that, but you add something to that. And to say this is the way that this can be worked out. If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have granted for me is given to God. In other words, the money to help and all that is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void or nullified or ineffective or overcome the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see, in response to their question, Jesus exposes their hypocrisy by asking them why they presented themselves as the protectors of the law and at the same time were breaking the law. Uh-oh, that hits me. How many times have I had a zeal to protect the law and obey it and confront someone, hopefully in a biblical good way, and yet there are issues in my life where I am breaking the same law, not the, you know, the, the, the law of God. Aren't we a mixed bag of people before God? And aren't you glad that God has forgiven us of all this mixture and is working in our lives by the Spirit to cleanse us of the mixture and to begin to transform us and is transforming us into a less and less activity of the mixture into more and more purity of Christ. Amen? Aren't you glad of that? You see, they were using the tradition of financially providing for their parents as a form of honor. They were using their tradition to get around that. How? They were taking their money and saying, it's dedicated to God. It's korban. It's dedicated to God. We can use it for our own purposes, but we can't do it help you because it's dedicated to God. We can't help you. Can't help you. Can't help you. And Jesus said, you're breaking the law because that's not what I intended in the law. You see, they were neglecting their responsibilities to their parents. And as a result, they were neglecting their responsibility to honor God. And then, of course, Jesus explains that the real issue of cleansing is the cleansing of the heart. The cleansing of the heart. What 
prophecy in the Old Testament do we remember concerning the cleansing of the heart? I will sprinkle water on them. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Remember that? And the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to sprinkle water on you. I'm going to pour water on you. So you get ready, Stephen. You're going to get water poured all over you, right? Awesome. awesome. You're right. Now, that's not physical water, but it's, it's symbolizing physical water. Okay, fine. And what is this water going to do? It's going to create a new heart. The Holy Spirit is going to wash away, using that terminology, this heart of stone, you remember, and to give us a heart of what? Flesh, a malleable, relational heart to God. And as a result of having that heart of flesh, then God is going to give me the ability and the desire to obey Him and to walk with Him, et cetera, et cetera, which I do not have unless the Holy Spirit confronts my hardness and deadness and resistance by removing all of that, thus giving me the ability to receive it and to walk in it. What is that called? Being born again, being saved. John 1.13, but to as many as received him. Remember that verse. Verses 10 to 20. And he called the people to himself and he said, Hear and understand, it is not what goes in the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out. Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended? And here's what the disciples said. Don't you know that you offended the Pharisees when they heard this? Now, I, I wanted to stop and just give a sermon or a teaching today on offending people with the Word and with whatever, but I'm not going to do that. I was held back. Now, he didn't say offending because you're mean as a snake. He simply says, they simply said, Jesus, you are sharing the truth. It offends them. Isn't there another way of getting the truth across without being this way? How many of us have, in a biblical way, hopefully by the Spirit, as we have been understood to be led, have shared the truth with someone, and yet they were still offended? How many times has that, has that happened? We were hopefully kind and gentle and caring. But what happens is when that truth, that arrow of truth strikes into the heart of another person, an unbeliever, but even believers, something in the flesh occurs, and that flesh rises up to oppose that truth. You see, because our flesh opposes the truth in every area all the time. Do you believe that? It's our flesh. It's our flesh. So we have to be careful not to offend in an unbiblical, you know, not to offend because we're being unbiblical in the manner in which we are sharing or living, but to be ready to know that as we genuinely live, cooperate, and fulfill the Word of God, being led by the Spirit, others, even in the church, are going to be offended. So what? Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Don't you know you offended them? Jesus answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if, they are, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. 
But Peter said to him, I don't get it. Will you explain the parable? And Jesus said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach, expelled, etc.? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. You see, Jesus explains the truth that was pictured in these rituals has to do with the cleansing of the heart, which the Holy Spirit will do only after Jesus is resurrected and exalted and sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That's the day when God literally, internally cleanses our hearts. That's when the hearts of the people of God begin to be cleansed. Before then, it had to be done ritualistically, externally through these, uh, you know, activities, and then the people could come into the presence of God because God had declared through this activity that they are cleansed. But now the Holy Spirit is cleansing us. The Canaanite woman. Well, here's an example. Here we go, an example of an unclean person. This is a Gentile. So Matthew immediately shows something about cleansing and cleaning and being unclean and clean. You know, this whole issue of acceptability, un unacceptability, coming into the presence of God, receiving the work of God, not receiving the work of God. Whom is God reaching out to? Whom he, is he not reaching out to? And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman. She's Canaanite. You know who the Canaanites were? They were the sworn enemies of God. God says, when you go into the land, you're going into Canaan. Kill them all because they're all dastardly dangerous to you. Canaanites, think of the worst people that you know. The worst people you know. Can you imagine some kind of filthy trash coming into our church building and asking for ministry here? Oh, my goodness. Where? Who is? Ugh, I don't want to sit. Ugh, can't pull. Amen. Right? Don't you know there are certain people in our society who are not worthy of us being with and ministering to? Don't you know that? Right? And so a Canaanite comes, much worse than any of these people we think of. And she says to Jesus, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But, when, but he didn't answer and heard a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, can you get rid of her? She's hurting the ministry here. She's disrupting the worship service. Lord, we're not going to get an offering today if you keep doing this. We've got to get this woman out of the way so we can have church. That's putting it in modern vernacular, don't you see? Because, you know, we're here to worship God, and if we have this person doing this, and you can't worship God here. Could you get rid of her so we could have real freedom in Christ? He answered, I was, not, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He's calling her a dog. This is what they thought of the Canaanites. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from the fall from the master's table. Oh. Then Jesus says, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done unto you as you desire, and her daughter was healed instantly. Let's look at the progression. 
Verse 22, she calls upon Jesus for mercy. O Lord, son of David. You remember, we've talked about that, the Davidic dynasty, the son greater than David. Remember in 2 Samuel, 2 Chronicles. Help me, help me. I got stuck. Chapter 7, 1 Samuel chapter, no, no. 1 Samuel chapter 7, I got stuck. Remember, your son shall build me a house, and your son shall sit on my throne forever. Remember that, verses 13 and 14? It's somewhere in the Bible. Someone said it to somebody. I think you can go read the book yourself. I don't know. <laughs> he, she calls upon him. Jesus ignores her. Can you imagine what insensitivity? Now, there have been a lot of people criticized Jesus for this. Verse 23, the second part. Then she turns to the disciples and says, hey, can you help me? Verse 24, Jesus again refuses to help her by explaining, he's not, I, I didn't come for you people. I came from the Israel, the Jews. What a discriminating person. Jesus is a bigot. I thought Jesus came for everybody. Jesus came for his own. But what about? But she persists. Now, before we get to the end, where is this persistence located? Why is she persisting? Is this a fleshly persistence, or is this the work of the Holy Spirit moving her, even ignorant to her? He's moving her to press in to Jesus. You see, this shows that someone must seek Jesus in order to be saved. No, it does not show that. This shows that the Holy Spirit is pushing someone into the presence of Jesus because this is a person whom Jesus will minister to. You see, this woman isn't doing this out of the flesh. She's being moved upon by a power greater than hers. She's being given wisdom here from on high. How do I know that? Because the Bible says nobody seeks for Jesus. Nobody calls him Lord and Son of David with faith. Do you see that? Then verse 26, Jesus again refuses to have mercy on her, telling her that to do so would be like children, throwing the children the bread to the dogs. And then finally, she confesses. He confesses her faith. What is he doing? He's doing what typically God does. He's asking a whole lot of questions. He's refusing to move immediately. We have a prayer request. We need something. There's genuine need. i got to have help. I've got to have help. And I go to God. I have to have help. There's a time issue here. I have to have this help by 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, Al. I need an answer. And the heaven seems like brass. What does that mean? Nothing. God, where are you? God, where are you? God, where are you? Nothing at all. Where's God? He's there all the time. What is he doing? He's causing our faith not to be based on a time sequence or an answer, but on in his character of faithfulness to his word. Faithfulness. And like 
the roots that need to go deeper in order to get the water when it doesn't rain a lot. Jesus is rooting her more and more into the soil of God, into the soil of God, the rich soil, deeper and deeper. And she finally hits that area to say, Lord, even the dogs, even the dogs. And Jesus says, you're there. You're there. And his, her daughter is healed. Great is your faith. Great is your faith. Does he ever do that to any of us? Do you ever find this kind of discourse in your own life with Jesus? Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Anybody here, you've recognized this as, this happens to me. So, Here's what we need to do, Perry. Here's what we need to do. First of all, we don't want this kind of activity. We want immediate answers. So here's what you need to do to get immediate answers. We're going to pray more. We're going to read our Bibles more. We're going to go to church more. And we're going to make sure we're in school of the Word more. Now, if that doesn't assure it, I don't know what will. <laughs> and we're going to do more and more and more and more work so we can get more and more answers from God and quicker answers according to our own, own will. Is that how to do it? No. Now, are we to be in school of the Word? Yes. Are we to be in church services? Yes. Are we to be reading the Word? Yes. Are we to be praying? Yes. But for the purpose of knowing and experiencing this God, not for the purpose of getting something from him, essentially, although we are want, supposed to want to get something from him. Remember Hebrews eleven six. Just go read it. It is not wrong to want to get something from God, but it has to be within the context of his timing and of his means, of his methods, of his own glory, of his own will. Amen. I find this in my own life. Gene and I are finding it right now in some struggles in our own family with, you know, some family members. We want answers when, sweetie? When? Yesterday. This one's saying yesterday. Or well, someone over here, what's your name? What's her name? Brenda. She said yesterday. How many of you need and want answers from God yesterday? Yes. So let me give you this little three-word statement that the Lord gave me one night praying. I was teaching Nehemiah, and at the end of chapter 1 of Nehemiah, in verse 11, he's asking God to move quickly on the king's heart so he can go back. Nehemiah can go back, what, and rebuild the walls, remember? And he said, please answer your prayer. My prayer went, today, at the end of verse 11, chapter 1 of Nehemiah, today, Alice, now, chapter 2 opens, it gives the month. Why does it do that? Who cares? Four months later, what in the world is wrong with God? Four months later, Ron, and here's what the Lord gave me when I was teaching that. And you can write this down. It's not in your notes. It's a statement. Time tests trust. I said, oh, I like that. I like that. If I don't say the Holy Spirit said, if I say I thought of, that makes it look like that came from me. Nothing comes from me of God. Nothing of anything of God comes ever from Peter Davidson. It never has. It never will. It has to come from the Holy Spirit, every bit of it. Anything that you were touched in this class by me or Bill Treby or any of us who teach, this is God through us and with us. Time tests trust. Time tests trust. Do you know what that means? 
when you need your answer by 10 o'clock tomorrow and it's one minute before 10, sissy, what? Where is God? Why isn't God? How can God do it now? Time test trust. And it's a testing, isn't it? But what is it? It's a testing that you see in Deuteronomy chapter 8 when the Lord says, let me tell you why I have led you all, how much, all, how much, all this way, all this way, so that you may learn that man does not live by bread alone, but that man lives by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Some of you may have seen the movie. Feeding of the 4,000. Oh, well, this is obviously a repeat. <laughs> We've already had 5,000. So what this is, this is a repeat. They just put it in here the second time and whatever. It's just a repeat. It shouldn't be in there. It's a mistake. You see, that's the critical exegesis of those who don't trust the Holy Spirit. You'll hear that sometime. But listen, let me try to go through it quickly. Jesus called the disciples. I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. Can you imagine a preacher preaching past 12 o'clock? Now, there's some churches that, let me tell you, when 12 o'clock hits, if the preacher's still preaching, those doors are bursting open. They got to get to the restaurant over there. And then actually some churches have changed their worship services, literally I know of one particular church, to 1130 so we can beat the Baptists over there. Come on, we know that. Baptists are bad in this. None of us are like that, right? So none of us look at the watch about 12 o'clock and say, when is he going to be? When is I going to get home? I got to watch the saints. Because you know the saints are more important than the worship of God, man. Don't you love being in here on Sunday morning? No wonder the class isn't filled with people. So, and he, he says, and I am Jesus, well, went on from there and walked along. Wait, where am I going? He sat down. Okay, verse 30. The great crowds came to him. And so they don't have anything to eat. So here's what he tells them to do in verse 33. And the disciples said, where would he get enough food? Remember, you've been in this kind of situation before and you still haven't learned. They just did this a few weeks ago. Remember that? And Jesus said, how, many, how much y'all have? Seven loaves and a few small fish. He directed, directed the crowd to sit down, and at the end, they picked it all up. 4,000 men and women ate, and after sending the crowds away, he got into the boat. But they wound up with seven baskets full left over. What does that say? In the first miracle, similar to this, you remember that, the 5,000? Similarities. A lot of people, Jesus being long-winded and not following his notes, folks are hungry. He doesn't care about his people's stomach. The Word of God is more important. No, no. He shows that the Word of God will meet any and every circumstance whatsoever. Remember, Deuteronomy, you're not living by bread alone. And so he brings them to a place, I think, purposefully for getting them hungry so he can show something of the power and the significance of the Word of God in their lives. It's not that he can't read the clock and he doesn't know what's happening and he doesn't discern that everybody's getting hungry. And he feeds them. And how much is left over? Twelve 
baskets full. What does the 12 represent? The full house of Israel. What does that mean? All of the nation of Israel for whom God has sent his son to save, this represents, I am going to save the full number of my people out of the house of Israel. That's the Israelite ministry. Then Jesus is now in the Gentile territory. And now we get a different group. It's 4,000, not five, the men. And what's left over? Seven. You had the number seven twice here, remember? Seven and seven. What is the number seven for? Completion. Completion. Where do we get that? Genesis 2-2. God rested on the seventh day. Remember that? Genesis 2-2. And he rested from all of his work on the what? Seventh day. It's completion. He's completed the work that he's put his hand to in this particular sense. Completion. So, what we're having here is he's showing that for the purpose of God to be completed and come into its fullness, the Gentile nations must come in. So now he's showing the gospel is also for the Gentiles. Now, why is that significant? Because you see, this is the fulfillment of his Adamic, Adam, Adamic purpose. When God created Adam and Eve, what did he say? Genesis one twenty six. let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then in verse 28, he began to show how Adam will be the fulfillment of that uh, imagery through three activities, one of which is you're going to take and subdue the whole earth. All of the earth will come under the rule and reign of God through Adam and his people's obedience, right? Remember that, the whole earth. And so now we had that promise then given to Abraham in chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17 of, uh, of uh, uh, Genesis, the nations, the nations, the nations. And we continue on, the nations, the nations. You see it in Isaiah, the nations, meaning the Gentiles also. And by the time we get to this, we're showing the gospel is for the whole world. God's purpose is to rule and reign over the world through his people. Amen. That's the difference here. That's why this is not a, this is a mistake and an addition. It is a purposeful putting that together. And then Jesus, you'll see, will say to him, don't you remember when I did this and that over there and then and so on? So this is that declaration. Here's the Messiah. He's come for every one of God's people. Amen. So next week we'll be in chapter, uh, what did we just finish? 15. Okay, next week, chapter 16. Thank you.